Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Hannah Lewis, a PhD student at Queen Mary University of London, who is working on the Body Project, which was previously produced by Stice and colleagues. This is to prevent and intervene with body image concerns within schools, particularly those in different cultures. Hello, Han. Hi, all right. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. No, thank you for coming. I'm super excited to talk to you and also love the fact that we both have the same name um, yes. and both like to be called Han, so it makes it even more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so to get started, got a broad question for you. Um, Go for it. What is body image? Oh, the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a big, it's a very broad what question. What is it? What is it? Uh, yeah, so it's it's... A good one to start with, I think. And, you know, I could spend a whole podcast debating <laughs> what body image is. Um, but I guess to start off with, it is body image, how we think and feel about ourselves and our bodies and uh, the potential behaviours that might come out of that. I would also say body image is something we all have. So very similar to how conversations are going with mental health these days where we say you know it's something we're all we all have it's something we're all born with and we have the ability to have good mental health and not so good mental health I would argue that's exactly the same for body image it's something we all have some people have quite positive body image and some people have not so positive body image yeah absolutely and I love what you said there about and I'm sure we'll come on to this in a bit maybe we'll come on to it now how we think and feel about our body Mm. because I think a lot of people think that your body image is how you know it's it's what you look like it's how you see yourself but the Mm. way that you think and feel about your body can completely alter the way that you see yourself a hundred percent and I think um when conceptualizing body image it's often thought about in four different ways and those are perceptual cognitive, affective and behavioural. And so that perception is how you see yourself. The cognitive is how you think about your body and the affective is how you feel about your body. Um, But it's important, isn't it, to recognise that most of the time we can't see those. It's that fourth one, it's the behavioural one. Um, And that's when we might run into a spot of bother if someone has negative body image or body dissatisfaction uh, and can develop problems such as eating disorders or body dysmorphic disorder as well. You have made that such a nice flow into like the part that I wanted to go on to. Uh, So thank you for for making that so beautiful. And I was just (laughs) going to ask you, so, you know, when body image, let's say, goes wrong, Mm -hmm. And then that might lead to things like eating disorders, body dysmorphic disorder. Why is that link there? Oh, again, another good question. Full of them today, Han. Um, (laughs) It's like I do a podcast. (laughs) I know, but you're good. Um, 
So it's, I think it's because body image is so closely entwined with our self-esteem and our confidence and our well-being that when that starts to deteriorate, we, uh, we will immediately feel things like, you know, that low sense of worth, perhaps being more self-critical, perhaps being um, more prone to risky behaviours like, well, absolutely, there was a study where it showed that people with lower body satisfaction would be more inclined to do things like smoking and dangerous drinking, dangerous driving and um, risky sexual behaviour and stuff like that. And I think that's because when we, when, when we don't appreciate ourselves, the way we look and ourselves as people, we, we tend to neglect ourselves. And that would be that tends to be what happens when people, you know, engage in disordered eating behaviours or more, more uh, ritualistic and compulsive behaviours associated with BDD as well. I think, I guess one thing that I just want to say before we go on is we're very aware that this is not everybody's kind of situation. And I think sometimes we can get wrapped up into that everybody with an eating disorder has body image issues. And that's Mm -hmm. maybe what triggered their eating disorder, which isn't the case, but just for this podcast, like that's going to be the focus of what we're talking about, but we're not generalizing eating disorders to say everybody with an eating disorder has those problems, but just for the sake of this episode, we're going to be talking about body image concerns and their link to eating disorders um that's a really good point Han like it is it, it's so multifactorial isn't it it's so complex why anyone would develop an eating mm. disorder um and I think it's interesting isn't it this focus that we do have on body image I think for so long we've associated body image with things like vanity and wanting to look like models and magazines but mm-hmm. I guess my argument is that body image is a public health issue like I just described if it doesn't if it goes wrong like you said there's you know some pretty nasty consequences um yeah and that that could include disordered eating behaviors um yeah. it's it's a risk factor isn't it um yeah absolutely and it's not going to be the same for everyone you're totally yeah. right um, I want to come back to the body dysmorphia in a second, but you just said about mm-hmm. kind of like the vanity and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. one thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, I think previously we've had this big thing in society of the thin ideal. Um, yeah. But in my opinion, I think that's shifted. I don't necessarily think we've got that drive for the thin ideal now, but it's more a drive for, and I'm generalizing this to women because I'm a woman myself, but that sort of... Um, toned athletic ideal rather than the thin ideal is that something you've noticed in your research oh absolutely I think I think appearance ideals change like the weather don't they and there was um some work I did a few years ago working with young people to sort of get this message across was we were looking at the appearance ideals from different eras and they're all so different and you know, there was the time where, you know, women, um, I can't think what I was going to say, but like there was the time where, where men wore flares and where Mm. men wore heels and makeup. And that was really, you know, that was the way to be. And women would, um, you know, have, have a certain body shape and, uh, 
certain hairstyle and wear certain clothes, but that just changes all the time. And I think, you know, there was a long period of time where the thin ideal dominated what the ideal was. Um, but that's 100% changed. I think the more you speak to young people, the more you realise, oh, there's even more to compete with than just mm. being thin. It's about having, a, like you said, a certain body type. Um, I, I think it's 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 really difficult nowadays because you you can't be too one way or the other, and it's it's just impossible really to hit that mm. ideal. I think like there's different celebrity body types and stuff out there which have become more prevalent than the say you know, 90s supermodel, straight up, straight down kind of look. Yeah. It's absolutely. just so complex. Like, it's it's impossible to, yeah. to follow. <laughs> I think that's the thing. And I think especially nowadays with social media, you know, pictures that you see, they're not even real. And I think that's what makes it so confusing. But sometimes I do... I find it a little bit frustrating, you know, if people put like, you know, this is the 1980s and this was the body idea, this is the 1990s, 2000s, whatever. And they're like, just be yourself because like body shapes change. And it's like, well, no, mm-hmm. because it, yes, the body shape is going to change in 10 years, but that doesn't mean that right now I'm not feeling that pressure to fit into that mold. In 10 years time, I'm going to feel the pressure to fit into the other mold. So I guess for me, it's more about learning like how can I be okay with the shape that I am now and you know feel okay in that I'm not saying that we need to all love our bodies because I think that's an unrealistic expectation as well but Mm -hmm. be okay now and you know rather than fighting against the grain all the time absolutely yeah I couldn't agree more yeah that's it. I've got nothing else to add. <laughs> because you agree. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> um, going back to body dysmorphia, though, because I think mm. this is a topic that I've wanted to talk about for quite a while on the podcast. Ooh, okay. Um, and I haven't spoken to anybody about it. And it's something that I'm quite passionate about because I've got personal experience. Mm. Um, and I guess, I guess if you're okay with talking about it, maybe you could talk about your lived experience as well. Um, But I think just kind of talking about our own experience is really important because I think it varies so much. Like for me, mine was very much, so I used to be a powerlifter. Um, Mm. So I had an eating disorder and I think I've always had like body dysmorphia um, throughout them because, you know, you. I think it's quite common in eating disorders because you look back at pictures and you're like, didn't think I looked like that then. But yeah. now for me, mine shifted and it's more muscle orientated. So sometimes I'll look in the mirror and think I look like the Michelin man. Mm-hmm. And other times I'll look in the mirror and be like, where's all that muscle gone that I've... And it's really confusing. And there's nothing that I personally have found, you know, you can't compare it to anything because I've been told by my therapist not to do that because that's like a reassurance and that's negative. But it's really confusing when you look in the mirror and you're like, I don't know who that person is. I think, yeah, not very academic, but I think the only way to describe body dysmorphia is a head foot. Sorry. Sorry. That's fine. It's 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 absolutely true. (laughs) It is, though. And, you know, it's a very, it still to this day, like, fascinates me. And I think Mm -hmm. that's why I decided to, like, study it and make it part of my PhD project because I still to this 
they can't fathom my own experiences. Um, and I think even compared to eating disorders, BDD is so under-researched, like even more than eating disorders, which is saying something. Um, and you're exactly right in that so many people um, with one or the other will experience symptoms from both. But I think what's really interesting is that the um, the research and the service provision and things like that for and treatments for BDD and eating disorders have been so separate and they're classified mm. so differently in statistic, um, diagnostic manuals like the DSM and ICD and stuff. So I guess a big a big aim of mine is to just integrate the conversations around the two disorders a bit more. Um, but yeah, it is just extremely confusing how it works. You know, it, for, for people who like aren't aware, I guess the, the, the definition of body dysmorphia or body dysmorphic disorder is, you know, for you to be preoccupied and concerned about a flaw that you perceive to be like worse than it is and other people are just like, no, sure, that's not right um that's it like it's simple in its simplest definition but I think and I've tried to explain it to some of my friends sometimes I think body dysmorphia is more of like a state of mind like BDD is that that just incomprehensible self-hatred that you have for yourself that stems from this you know physical appearance concern and escalates into something that is just so devastating because you you tie up your appearance so much with yourself and I've never met people talk so badly about themselves and those with BDD like the way they talk shit about themselves honestly um it's like nothing I've ever heard before and it makes sense you know after hearing those conversations that people have why there's this massive um suicidality risk with BDD it's huge it's 45 times more than um that for a person in the general population and you can't say that's because of vanity it's not it's because this is because people feel so deeply and so strongly about themselves being a shit person mm -hmm. I think that's what it really is about I think it's the 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 thing that always like stood out to me and when I would like explain it to people so that they could sort of comprehend it's that negative reinforcement of I mean and this is my personal experience mm -hmm. I just ha like I'm much better now but you know there were times when I was checking my stomach in the mirror a hundred times a day like and I needed to check to know that it was the same but I was never happy with what it looked like. So it was that constant need to check, but equally mm -hmm. checking made me feel crap. And, but it was just constant. But then, like you said, that vanity aspect, you know, people, my parents or my family or friends would catch me every single shop window I walked past, I had to check. And they'd be like, yeah. why are you doing that? Like, stop looking at yourself or, you know, in pictures, I'd be like, can I see it please? Because I need to check that, you know, everything's okay. I'm like, why yeah. are you doing that? Like, stop looking at yourself. And I'm like, honestly, I wish it was because I felt I good know. and I wanted to look at myself because that's not. And I think, I don't know if this resonates with you, Han, but I think people think you're looking at yourself to check you look like good and you look attractive, but it's more about checking that you don't look 
totally awful yeah. and it's like maybe you're at a you know an acceptable level but you never you never think oh I look good actually it's more like oh that's not completely disgusting so that's a win you know what I mean it's it's just so inverted and in on its head how people with BDD think about themselves yeah and I think what you were saying earlier about how it's completely separated like in the DSM-5 and the ICD from eating disorders is really interesting and am I right in saying that it's under like an obsessive compulsive disorder yeah absolutely it's had a fun little journey in the DSM um it was at one point classified as like a form of hypochondria and like health anxiety and things like that or somatoform disorder or something but yeah for the last um couple of iterations it has been grouped with OCD and related disorders and I think okay yeah there's yeah there is some truth in that I think because it follows that same cycle as OCD where you have the the thing that causes you anxiety and causes you negative feelings and then you find the other thing that alleviates that anxiety and then the gag is you need to keep doing that thing and it turns compulsive and like ritualistic in order to appease that anxiety and that reinforces the initial fear um, that set you off in the first place so that is yes I really do agree with that and also thinking about our NICE guidelines and stuff which inform treatment that people receive in the NHS OCD and BDD are together there as well so um, people like um, people would have the same pathway for both of those disorders which is usually CBT and SSRIs but then you compare it to eating disorders and you know you, you can't help but notice that overlap there's also been arguments from people to maybe develop a new category of body image disorder where they would have things like BDD and eating disorders more closely aligned. Um, yeah, because I think that's the that's the bummer for me that they're categorised differently and so treated differently. And so when you have someone presenting to services with both with traits of both of those conditions, it's normally a case of choosing one to go with first Mm -hmm. and you know often that's about physical health stabilization before being able to tap into those like core beliefs around body image that could be motivating disordered eating in the first place so Mm. yeah I don't know what the answer is though leave it with me I'll probably have an answer at the end (laughs) of the and then I'll let you know (laughs) please do let me know again I'm, I'm speaking anecdotally here but I suppose like it's it's my experience but I found I found it really really frustrating when I was in treatment because I was in anorexia recovery so with that weight restoration obviously vital but there was no there was no support for my changing body you know the way Mm. that I saw myself I was very much I needed to be small and I didn't see myself as small so then when that started to change and I was told to put on weight there was no support for navigating that and I think in a way that that then accentuated the body dysmorphic disorder which then kind of traveled into the kind of fitness industry because I used that to mask my eating disorder right and... okay oh that's oh god that's another podcast <laughs> episode. The, All, but, <laughs> the role guess... of exercise and where that comes in mm-hmm. yeah 
but I think like fundamentally my point is is just like I agree with you in that it's they're not considered together and I think Mm -hmm. they have to be because especially if somebody presents with you know struggles with their body image I've spoken a lot um, recently to different people about like embodiment and stuff and I think one of the biggest things through recovery is working out how you feel in your body and if you don't Mm -hmm. like the reflection sitting in your own body is just as hard so absolutely like I go through phases like with my therapist uh still to this day where I'm just like I just feel like divorced from my body like I don't I just at the moment don't want anything to do with it I don't want to engage you know it's just something that gets me from A to B at the moment and I have no other sort of thoughts about it I don't want anything it's very flat um yeah and that and it's interesting how you refer back to treatment and like you know weight restoration and stuff because whilst my experience was a little bit different um having bulimia and binge eating by going into um outpatient treatment and sort of overcoming compensatory behaviors the sort of the obvious outcome is weight gain and I think to experience that as a non-underweight person adds with it a whole other host of um difficulties because like how can you how can you blame someone for feeling shit about weight gain regardless of their body size when we live in a society that is so so focused on not just the thin ideal but also completely obsessed with like fat phobia as well mm-hmm. and so obsessed with perpetuating fat phobia we have a government I don't know if you can say that we have a government that does that they're like anti-obesity public health messaging that isn't really public health messaging at all it's about body shaming and about guilt-driven people into restriction into restrictive yeah. practices um in a way that's unsupported which could end not very well for quite a lot of people yeah I think you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. I think <clears throat> the minute you say I lost weight, everybody is applauding you. And the minute you mm. say I put on weight, everyone's questioning, you know, why why have you done that? Which is not how it should be in the slightest, because at the end of the day, it's nobody's business. Correct. Mm. I guess my question to you is, I suppose we've been kind of negative about everything but there should be positives as well into if somebody is struggling kind of with their body image mm. how to sort of navigate that and how you know whether that is in treatment or just on their own sort of learning to respect their body mm. Ooh, big one okay so I guess because my project's all about like using schools as a way to prevent and Which we will get on to. Oh yeah, yeah. Um <laughs> I, I, I do think that would be quite a good um place to start. I think I think that schools should be should embed things like body image and eating disorder prevention in their curriculum we need a whole school approach against it, which I think would be lovely and you know we can talk about that in a bit more detail. But I think there's just so many different layers to this and so many different opportunities really for intervention thinking about you know the way families talk about their bodies in front of their children thinking about how friends talk to each other about 
about their bodies, thinking about how the media makes us feel about our bodies. How does the government make us feel? It's just, I think, how long's a piece of string? Is like, what are the opportunities to intervene and promote a positive body image? Um, yeah. There's so many. I think like in, t- in terms of if there was a person listening today and not feeling very good about themselves and thinking perhaps that they were uh, on the cusp of developing something that we've spoken about, like BDD or disorder dating, I think there is there are two really brilliant charities in the UK. First of all, the BDD Foundation, I'm going to start with, because they, um, well, I, I, I work quite closely with them, um, the brilliant charity who are so small and the only UK charity to support people with BDD. Um, and for a few years, we've actually been um, running like peer support groups for people who have BDD, but also a um, like peer-led self-guided CBT group as well, um, oh. so that people can access like the CBT that they should get in um, statutory services, which is so difficult to access, as we know. Um, so I think, yeah, for, for anyone with concerns about developing BDD, definitely go to BDD Foundation. Um, and similarly, if there's anyone um, worried about their disordered eating, um, the charity B is also brilliant in in offering similar things like peer support groups, um, you know, guided CBT, um, and maybe just like online forums as well. If you just wanted to sort of chat to people who were going through similar things. I think on both of those websites, there should be resources as well to be able to um, support you in in sort of just understanding your body image and understanding why it might be making you feel a certain way. There's also the um, the book called Overcoming Body Image Problems, including body dysmorphic disorder, written by David Beale and Rob Wilson and Alex Clark. And for me, that's that's been a big tool in my recovery. I remember when I first got diagnosed with BDD um, and disorder dating, I just got like all the books available and just like did all the workbooks and things like that, just to try and understand what was happening. Yeah, thank you so much for those recommendations. I'll put them in the bottom, um, in the Yeah, definitely. People have (laughs) access to them. And I think two things that you said stood out for me was the peer support. I think speaking to other people that are going through similar things can be so one eye opening, but two, just it makes you feel less alone. You know, if you think you're the only person in the world that looks in the mirror and doesn't see what's actually there, that can be really daunting. Um, 100%. But equally, um, what you said about kind of learning and stuff like that, for me, one of the like biggest, because I was, I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 14, but only diagnosed with body dysmorphia when I was 20. Um, oh. So for me, having that, no, I wasn't 20, 22, 22. Uh, so, you know what? Sorry. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised in a way that it was, it was later that you got the BDD hmm. diagnosis because uh, I think research shows that people are often waiting 15 years between the onset of symptoms and a diagnosis. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like that. And mm. that, what I was going to say was for me, in a really weird way, it was such a relief because I was like, finally had an answer for why my body looked different every single day in a picture taken two minutes ago, it changed. Um, So yeah, I can imagine 
waiting 15 years and then finally being like oh that's that's why that's it yeah it's I like think, a light bulb moment isn't it yeah, mm. yeah and think you know getting a diagnosis I've heard a lot of people with with lots of different um conditions can often be really relieving and eye-opening because you're just like that makes so much sense now so yeah absolutely and reading as well I mean I personally I think we're both pretty academic so we both like to know what's going on and stuff so definitely reading will help definitely I was um yeah I, I was diagnosed with BDD first when I was 18 um but we sort of traced back the beginning of my symptoms to when I was 89 years old which oh. is like bloody young yeah to be mm. having those sort of intense feelings about yourself um and then it wasn't until I was in like my early 20s that the bulimia um, was then diagnosed after but you know which came first chicken or egg I, oh, I don't yeah. know and that um, is the, <laughs> that's a million dollar question is it which yeah 100% I think it just it was just that at various times one was louder than the other if you know what mm-hmm. I mean and I, I guess you know that that it, it depends on the day um that you go for an assessment and I've had um it, that reminds me of a conversation I was having with another academic um Nicole Nicole Schnackenberg and you can link a paper that I'll send to you in the um in the blurb so people can read it but she she's one of the um few researchers to link BDD and um eating disorders as well and we were having a conversation about how it's almost like a sliding doors moment when you have that assessment and it's like, which one's the loudest that day? Is it the ED or is it the BDD? And that could determine your treatment route. And like we were saying before, it's it, it sort of depends on what that clinician wants to prioritise on that day, whether you end up sort of down the eating disorder treatment pathway or the BDD treatment pathway. And it's just a shame that they're different and not integrated. And I think yeah. in an ideal world, that's what that's what we'd have, isn't it? yeah absolutely I feel like I've gone off piece then what were we talking about I can't remember right? but I was just going to respond to something so and I, th- I think off piece is is perfect um right okay but, great or I was just going to say and then we will move on to your research was mm. I think and then obviously this is me talking personally but something I've found recent I, I would say in the past two years I've really like recovery from my eating disorder has really happened um oh, great and which has been fantastic I I don't really I wouldn't really say that I have any sort of maybe a few disordered eating traits now but oh, I you. think that's, one hand. that's not easy <laughs> so really yes yeah, so it's it's much nicer life now but mm. I'm not I'm not saying but to be in a negative sense because I'm now working through this but the eating disorder sort of numbed everything else and now other things are coming through one of them being the body dysmorphia so I think that can happen as well in that the eating disorder, you have maybe some mental health conditions that eating disorder comes and it's like, I'm just going to envelope you and we're going to be all fine <laughs> and you're just going to do this eating disorder stuff and everything else will go away. So then yeah. now the eating disorder's gone, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm an onion peeling off the layers. And oh my God, more. the gag um, is the other stuff doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's still um, there. Exactly. So maybe that as well is like when people go for assessments it could be that it's just being kind of masked by the eating disorder symptoms which can be Mm. really strong and you know sometimes there's uh, more of a sense of urgency with like the physical health implications of those disordered eating behaviors and say some of the safety behaviors found in bdd 
um mm. you know which is an understandable reason why that would then be prioritized at the time yeah mm. yeah absolutely um but I guess it's just giving people the space to then work through the other stuff as well rather than just focusing on the physical yeah. health stuff which is a whole other podcast <laughs> oh my god I know that would be amazing though wouldn't it I think that might be the dream to yeah. have that integrated like BDD and ED mm. pathway or something yeah oh my god a multidisciplinary right. team of there we go oh, <laughs> we'll make it we'll make it happen <laughs> oh my god what would you, who'd your dream team be oh no that's oh, that's <laughs> such a good game <laughs> one it day <laughs> who would you have around the table yeah um, oh that'd be so cool <laughs> Okay, have me, by the way. I'd like to be at that table. Thank you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You'll be there <laughs> with bells on, right. don't Research. Yes. What is the body project? What is the body project? So it is a big part of my life at the moment <laughs> <laughs> as I'm halfway through my PhD. Um, where, okay, let, let me take you back a few years. So I did my master's um 2016 it was and I for my project did a systematic review of body image uh interventions that were delivered in schools and this this body project kept coming up um and so I looked into it um after after I did that um that project and the body project is probably the the intervention that has the largest evidence base it's been developing over gosh almost 20 years now um it started yeah like in the like in the early 2000s um in the states people were developing these um cognitive dissonance based interventions that challenged the thin ideal and then it just sort of snowballed from there and this intervention um has had loads of evaluation uh loads of longitudinal evaluation which shows that by decreasing body dissatisfaction, people's risk of developing an eating disorder has decreased as well, uh, which we love. We love we love decreasing that risk. Um, and it's had a few different uh, adaptations done to it and a few different ways um, that it can be delivered. But commonly it's it uses like your peers to go in and run these sessions that are based around cognitive dissonance, which is essentially like that, you know, that weird like conflict you have where you're like, oh, what you're saying is right, but I don't fully believe it myself. Well, the activities and the interventions aim to overcome that. So they're all based around like, like social activism and things like that and writing a younger letter to yourself and discussing like what good conversations about bodies might look like and what bad conversations about bodies might look like. Um, so, so that is, yeah, that's the body project. Um, so things get a bit interesting when I tell you that in 2017, the um, Department of Health and um, Social Care and the Department for Education published the Children and Young People's Mental Health Screen Paper. And in that policy initiative, they, they uh, set the proposal of developing something called mental health support teams who would deliver group-based interventions to critique the thin ideal and um, like reduce the risk of developing an eating disorder. So as soon as I saw that, 
in that policy document, I was like, they're referring to the body project. Um, they've got to be, uh, or at least cognitive dissonance like interventions. And it would make sense as well, because in um, in my time working in mental health policy, uh, like various different charities, um, with having the largest evidence base, that's always been the one that people have recommended to be delivered in school. So I was like, okay, great, it's finally happening. So yeah, that's the body project. <laughs> um, I guess like something that I noticed um, was that, you know, like I said, amazing evidence base uh, that's been developed over the years. But as with most sort of psychological interventions, there was that sampling bias. And so it was showing that, yes, it was effective, but then you look at who was included in those studies and it was you know, a, a particular type of person, which, you know, unfortunately was like the eating disorder stereotype. So that college aged white um, female. And we know that there's more people who are affected by eating disorders than that. And I guess that's why with um, the projects I'm doing, I want to sort of see how we can make it more culturally inclusive so that if we are going to roll it out in mental health support teams and we are going to deliver these types of interventions then that the right for everybody who's going to be receiving them yeah absolutely yeah. I think that is something that is so important I think seeing past the eating sort of stereotype of white middle class young female um mm. have there been other like have there been other modifications I guess would be the word already yeah, or yeah, are you the first person no there's been a couple um the first one I came across was with orthodox Jewish girls um wow. and then there was another one with Saudi Arabian women there's also been one for men um and there's also been one for people who identify as part of the LGBTQ uh, plus community um so yeah, there, there's Fantastic. a couple going, which is really good. Um, so it, it just made sense that I sort of jumped on that bandwagon and found a way to make it, um, to modify it for young, diverse people. Mm. What sort of cultures are you looking at in your research? So specifically, because I'm based in um, at Queen Mary and working um East London mm -hmm. I'm looking at um South Asian adolescent girls um so that includes people from Bangladeshi Indian Pakistani Sri Lankan uh backgrounds yeah so that's where I'm going to start it was I, I really wanted to just do everything <laughs> there's so <laughs> many different because we know that like you should look at body image through this intersectional lens and ethnicity is just one part of that. Mm -hmm. I think looking at, you know, gender identity and uh, sexual orientation and ability and disability. And there's just Absolutely. so, there's just so many ways that you could, um, yeah, look at it. But I'm going to start with South, South Asian adolescent girls. Um, and, you know, hopefully if the, the methodology and the process of co-production and all of that works out, then I can continue to do this, but with other groups. That yeah. would be the dream, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. You know, the fact that you've got that goal of wanting to kind of 
explore all different cultures, all different ethnicities, different disabilities, genders, sexualities, I think is completely fantastic. Um, and something that I'm so keen on this podcast of getting people from all different places and areas of life um, and them sharing their experience, because then I think it helps when people then listen. They're like, oh, I'm not alone yeah. and someone understands me. Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, I'm, re- I'm really torn because the um, the body project's like brilliant. I really don't want to set it off, but I'm just, I'm just thinking about, you know, perhaps delivering that to say like, you know, the diverse communities that we have in East London. I just don't think like looking at, because some of it is a little bit, um, you know, you ask whether it will be relevant. For example, there's like a exercise where you have to critique a image of Kate Moss in Elle McPherson. Um, so yeah, I can see your face. It's like <laughs> that, I don't even, think I find that relevant. Like no, never mind. I was just gonna say, say from a like ethnically diverse background. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe instead of that, we need to look at things like you know the influence of families and yeah. religion and um all of you know so many different things. Yeah, and that's exactly what we were talking about with. Fahin a couple of weeks ago was that collective culture is so different to the western culture in that so individualist isn't it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. like you know um, when there's a medical issue within the within the collective cultures everyone goes to the doctors and you all eat together and the way that an eating disorder presents is so so different and so that the pressures for body image equally are going to be so different absolutely Mm. yeah well we have come on to our new section. Well, it's not new. It's like the fourth time I've done it now, but I keep saying new, um, of the podcast, which is called What You've Been Wanting to Ask. Like a bean. Oh, a yeah. Bit. yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, so basically if people haven't listened to the other podcast, the premise of this is reach out to the community to ask questions that they have got regarding the topic that we're going to be speaking about this week. Um, So I reached out to the community and asked what questions they had about body image. Um, So one, we've got two questions. One's very broad, one's a bit more narrow, but anyway, we will have a fantastic time. Um, Straight to the point, do you think body image awareness will prevent eating disorders? No. Next. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like it. Yeah, I like that you said no. I like that you said no. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, um, okay, in an ideal world, like, yeah, it would be that we tackle this one thing we increase awareness we impart tools on young people to manage it and like and that would be it um but I think realistically like acknowledging the complexity of eating disorders all of them you know not just anorexia or bulimia but binge eating disorder and osbed and all your atypicals which are a little bit of nonsense I think you don't mind me saying (laughs) sort of feel by weight stigma and things like that you know yikes we just live in this world where we're we're going to die a little bit aren't we like even if someone had all these tools to develop a perfect body image I think there's still many other risks um that could unfortunately um provoke just disordered eating and potentially a eating disorder as well 
So I'm it's so... part of a very big puzzle, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm so Isn't glad you said that. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think... I was actually... So I had a bit of... Not a rant, but I had a bit of a, like my mind felt blown early I felt super overwhelmed and I was like messaging a friend like what's even our goal here like as in in like healthcare professionals within eating disorders you know is our goal to prevent is it to cure is it to treat like what is actually the goal um and I think we get so sometimes we get so wrapped up in you know we need to increase awareness and we need to prevent eating disorders. And I think they're great goals to have, but ultimately it's a mental health condition. Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're not going to be able to prevent every single one because just like nobody knows the specific cause of their eating disorder in an ideal world, it'd be great if we could go into schools and prevent eating disorders, but it'd be great if it was that simple. I know if only, if only, I think, I, th- I think something that motivates me is I think back to when, you know, I mentioned before being like eight or nine and starting with these like quite profound feelings of body dissatisfaction. Um, and I guess I'm thinking what would have helped me then? Yeah. Like this, I guess the seeds were already there from a BDD, but no one tried to like dig them up or understand them or anything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe if we had that people's, people's journeys people's trajectories would be a little bit different than mine maybe you know they would understand what something is access treatment or like a low to moderate intervention for what they were experiencing and then they would have the tools to manage it in the future um and maybe you know it wouldn't be as severe as if they didn't have that and yeah oh god I really I really empathize with you having that conversation with your friends sometimes I like wake up in the middle of the night and be like what's the point <laughs> what's the point of my PhD why am I doing this <laughs> but yeah if it can help anyone exactly. and you know perhaps like divert that trajectory of having a horrible time like I did great yeah but ultimate prevention ooh, lovely idea really lovely Absolutely idea dream I think not um, quite feasible at the moment I don't think no one thing like the friend that I was talking to that we always say when we have you know like a little breakdown about oh my god I, I wanted to save the world and I'm not doing it is that even if we do a small thing but it contributes to a bigger picture you know hopefully maybe in a million years time we'll have got somewhere but as long as we're kind of stacking it up everybody's contributing a little bit then it's mm. not going to be something that one person turns around and says got it got I've got it exactly like you're probably aware of all the massive um research projects going into like uh research in genetics and things like mm-hmm. that at the moment and again you know that is just one part of the puzzle um yeah. that, you know w- there's no no such thing as like a silver bullet that's going to you know give us all the knowledge we need it's it's part of this massive puzzle that we all need to like why we all need to collaborate and like share knowledge and see if together we could have you know we could make progress absolutely um and then the second question which I think is I quite like this question um what are your tips for summer clothing and body image that transition from winter maybe baggier clothing more cover-up to then summer with more maybe revealing tighter clothes 
gosh, wow, that is specific. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. I um, like it though. Don't know yeah. what the word. Mm. Oh, I don't know about tips, but like that's a really good question. I think like <laughs> weather and wardrobes and choosing clothes, that is a bit of like a oh, puts me in a bit of a tailspin as well, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at this stage I prioritize comfort above everything. Um that doesn't that doesn't mean like stay in my pajamas all day although that is you know quite dreamy that's how I've been um, today <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've got uh, yeah I've got my floral like jammy bottoms on so cozy no one can see them um, on zoom they, I know they help me think it's fine um yeah so comfort by just doing what's right for you um yeah it's it's hard to like give advice but I would say like for me I prioritize comfort above all I prioritize like staying cool especially like in the summer months where it's quite hot because that can often like make you feel quite uncomfortable um yeah and I I think like I wouldn't like I think there probably would have been a time where I would have like tried to cover up in those in those like warmer summer months but now I'm like does that equal comfort? I don't think it does. Mm. And so that would, you know, now that prevails for me, um, which is a difficult place to get to. Um, so, yeah, I think I would just try and try and do that if I was yeah. still struggling. Like, what would make me comfortable? What's weather appropriate? I think mm. um, definitely for me, like, summer was always a difficult time. But equally, mm. I think... There's, there's always like, from what I've heard, there's kind of two sides to body dysmorphia. I mean, maybe I'm talking more specific about muscle dysmorphia, but people either wear super tight clothes because they're like, people have to see the shape that I am or wear very baggy clothes because they're like, I'm not, you know, whatever enough that I need to be. Yeah. And the majority of the time I leant towards the tight cropped like I needed people to see what my body looked like because that was my way of being like I do actually look okay you know even though deep down I thought I didn't I needed mm. that um needed that like external like reassurance that validation yeah mm. but so I think for me and this is like a shift that I've only noticed kind of as I'm talking to you I've not really recognized this in myself but I love bright colors and so now my clothes are literally just as bright as possible I've started wearing baggy clothing more um I've started wearing you know baggy jumpers and big bright bold colors and I'm not trying to hide myself I'm just being as bright as I can be um and sometimes that's that's a crop top but sometimes it's a floaty dress and it's I don't care about it being tight and showing off my body now it's just because it's colorful and that's who I am that's so nice that is so nice and are you comfy as well yeah exactly tight clothes are not comfortable (laughs) exactly (laughs) comfort that is it that is the top tip go for what is comfortable because on Sundays comfort could be a leather suit and on Sundays comfort could be your pajamas exactly exactly I guess uh, not a tip but just like a you know Food for thought, for want of a better phrase. Um, <laughs> if, you know, you, you notice 
that you're wearing certain things and avoid it just be mindful of avoidance really mm. because those avoidance behaviors can really creep in at yeah. any point and you've just got to sort of check yourself and be like am I wearing this because like comfy I'm wearing it to avoid anyone seeing like what's underneath yeah um yeah just just be mindful I, I guess yeah it's been absolutely to talk absolutely to talk to you absolutely All lovely right. <laughs> It has been absolutely lovely to talk to you um, and just have such a natural flowing conversation. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Hannah. And thanks for letting me talk about body image and BDD and eating disorder and everything, my project. Yeah, it's been really fun. So thanks. I so enjoyed that conversation with Han and I don't know whether you could tell but I thought that the energy was fantastic. I think for a topic that was so close to my own heart and something that isn't really understood properly in eating disorders it was really nice to have a conversation with somebody who had the similar idea to me. Next week we'll be joined by Veronica Kamerling who is a carer representative and an expert by experience after both of her daughters had an eating disorder. Veronica now works with families and professionals with a focus on codependency. Basically, codependency can be defined as any relationship in which two people become so invested in each other uh, that they can't function independently. Um, And your mood and happiness and identity are, are defined by the other person. And you're sort of, well, I mean, people laugh about being sort of joined at the hip, but you need, well, I, I'm going to talk personally about this because it doesn't affect everybody in the same way. Sure. But for me, it meant that I, I needed to be helping to feel good about myself. And I don't know whether that will resonate with anybody, but that sort of is how it went. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.